I, I believe in City Impact. It's a ministry my dad started 33 years ago. And here's my dad's story in a nutshell. I'm not here to push any of the programs or anything because that's, that, it, it's, not, it's neither here nor there. But, but here's my dad's story. My dad was a Taiwanese immigrant, dropped off in the 1970s during the hippie movement right here in San Francisco, didn't understand a word of English, okay, and on top of that, he had never heard the name Jesus Christ ever. And then he was abused for 18 years of his life by his father. So here's my dad, for 18 years being abused, he finally runs away, he uh, turns all of his trauma into work ethic. My dad is an incredible workaholic, man. He is a great worker. And he became successful, climbed up the corporate ladder. But at, at the age of 27, he had no hope, no purpose. He was completely just like a, a broken man at 27 years old. And he worked his way up the corporate ladder. He was working at Park 55, head auditor, right there on Cyril Magnin. And uh, one day, he, you know, he went to work. He went out partying. And uh, he was a little inebriated, came home, passed that on the couch. And on the television was a man preaching about Jesus. This man was Jimmy Swagger. Come on, somebody. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Seriously, if there's anything wrong with my family, we just blame it all on Jimmy. Um, and, uh, and so, so like, that's how I grew up. And, and, and so my, my dad, man, okay, my, my dad's a first-generation Christian. My mom is a first-generation Christian, too. And her story's even crazier. She's an immigrant from France. You know what I'm saying? So it's the exact same story as my dad, except she just surrenders a lot more. But... Um, She's, I'm sorry. I always, uh, that's why, yeah. That's why I have a lot of spiritual discipline, but also surrender. It's half Chinese, half French. But, uh, um, <laughs> so, we don't come from a long lineage of Christians, like seven, you know, seven generations of, no, 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 like my dad first believed, my mom first believed, and then I was born, okay? All the other kids were out of wedlock. I was born during marriage, right? So I'm the chosen one. Um, I'm joking. I'm totally joking. But uh, I am the favorite one for my parents. But here I was born. And he, listen, my parents, before they were Christians, they were really cool. I mean, seriously. Tower of Power, Fleetwood Mac, Janis Joplin. My dad had bell bottoms before bell bottoms were cool. He would wear button-down shirts and only button this one. Gold chains, you know, Afro. He was the Chinese John Travolta. And, and so, so they were, I mean, smoking, drinking, partying. That was their life. But then they met Jesus, and the pendulum had swung, folks. I remember them taking wine and pouring it down the sink, smashing cigarettes, breaking records. And, and, and that's the environment I grew up in. I mean, we were not even allowed to eat Lucky Charms because there's no such thing as luck, only God's sovereignty. Okay? I'm not playing. I am not kidding. I'm serious. I'm just like, this is the world I grew up in. And, and, I mean, we used to have church. I never even watched Sunday Night Football before because there was always Sunday Night Church. And Sunday Night Church was the one that had the three-hour altar call, okay? So I'm a three years old on the altar call, and they would worship and worship and worship. And, uh, and, and I'd just be like, can we go home, please? She's like, no, shh, you need Jesus, okay? And, and so I grew up in this environment. I've been at church my whole life, man. And, and, and actually, in hindsight, man, I tell families this all the time. If you want to be blessed, raise your kids in church, because a lot of things, man, are caught, not taught. I don't remember one sermon my dad ever preached, but I could tell you when the presence of God is around. And when you lift your voice and sing, man, I could feel the spirit of God in this place. And, and, uh, and, and so here we are, right? And as a pastor's kid, you know, I'll read things like Sermon on the Mount, which is the sermon, uh, the series that we're all going through as a church. And I'll read a portion like that. 
And this is how, you know, if I could be just candid with you, this is how I feel. It's, it's kind of like I'll read 100 fitness magazines, right? Like, wow, it's incredible. So much good information, so many challenging ideas. You know, I, I begin to, like, feel like the task is insurmountable, that I just defer to what I know best, right? So I just go over to Wynn's Restaurant on Terravel and order roast pork over rice. It's like all this content is, is paralyzing me. Let me just eat and mull over everything I just read, you know? That's how I feel when I read the Sermon on the Mount because Jesus is throwing out crazy stuff. I'm just, like, if they slap you in the cheek, turn the other one. Like, if they take your coat, give them your jacket, you know, or something like that, shirt, jacket. And if they make you walk a mile, go the extra mile. And it's just like, by the time I'm done reading that single sermon, I'm just like, I'm so paralyzed, I can't even do anything. I can't even do number one. How about the other 17 things you mentioned? And so I just get paralyzed and then defer to Dave Chappelle on Netflix. But I'm just kidding. I'm not advocating. Don't watch that. It's bad. Now, that's what happens when I read portions like that. However, I'm here to encourage us there's hope for us. I'm here to encourage you. Before we dive into the text and the topic for today, I think it's vitally important to look exactly at what Jesus is doing when he's actually giving the sermon. Because it's, 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 it's so much more than Jesus just trying to introduce us to new concepts or theories. The reality is these aren't just ideological principles that Jesus came up with to try to modify our behaviors, try to make us bad people a little bit better. No, no, no. The sermon itself is revolutionary because Jesus, more than the sermon, he's ushering in the kingdom of God. I'm from an inner city church. If you don't shout at me, I don't know if you've passed out or not, all right? So thank you. So it's okay. Let me tell you what's appropriate. Three things are, you can shout amen, you can shout, you can wave a hanky, and you can shout preach big boy, all right? (laughs) So it's more than this sermon. Okay, so look beyond the sermon. Get the bigger picture. Okay, the Sermon on the Mount is more than just a bunch of ideological principles trying to modify people's behaviors. No, no, no. Jesus is actually ushering in the kingdom of God. A kingdom that doesn't just make bad people good, but dead people live. A kingdom with a king, and this sermon reveals the culture of this kingdom. Why did Jesus come to this earth? The Sunday school answer is down the cross, and that is absolutely the truth. That's probably the biggest thing that he's done. But the full picture is that the going to the cross is part of the bigger picture, which is Jesus came to usher in the kingdom of God. You see, God's original design, I'm going to take a step back, and I know you just went through a year of biblical literacy, so you're a very literate church when it comes to the Bible, but there are people that are still searching to follow this man, Jesus, and I'm here to remind you, this is basically what happened. God's original design during creation was that God was going to walk with man. Then sin entered into the world, and then a separation occurred. This gap between us and God had temporary measures, temporary solutions to kind of patch this hole that sin had created. So there was the law, the temple, the sacrifices. There were judges, kings, prophets. All of these were an attempt to close this gap between us and God, but they were all temporary. It's kind of like this. Look, this is a picture of my family. My four kids. Okay, I have four kids under 11. Okay, two things. I'm emotionally unstable. I haven't slept in a decade. Now, my son... I named named the boys, okay? And just like any good Chinese father, I named them great, strong Jewish names, okay? Okay. Malachi, okay, God's messenger. Micah, who's like Jehovah? Levi, harmony with God. And I figured, okay, we have one girl, okay. 
babe, you can name the girl. Just, just go for it, you know? And I'm hoping, like, she's, you know, Maya. It means Rice Valley. <laughs> I'll let you just kind of guess who's the troublemaker. But uh, it's kind of like this. I show you this picture because when my wife and I need to go on a date, we call a babysitter. And this is what happened, okay? Uh, so so we, we'll call a babysitter, and uh, we'll get a text. Hey, your kids are out of control. Okay, hypothetical. <laughs> And in that moment, the babysitter then serves as temporary governance. Then I say, hey, put my son on the phone. I, I talk to my, I say, hey, hey, son, when I get home, just you wait. <laughs> so not only do they have a temporary governance, but they have my words to temporarily keep them accountable until I show up and rectify the situation. <laughs> and that is what this book is all about. <laughs> because... In the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, God's creation went crazy. We don't even get past chapter 6 before a flood destroys all of humanity because of our sin and depravity. Like, and so you know what God did? He put this temporary governance in place. And then he gave his word through prophets and priests and, and, and kings. And, and he put, he, but ultimately he knew in order to rectify this gap between us and him, he'd have to come himself. And he had to send his son. But this is what I love about Jesus, because when I go home, I'm just like, come on, who's acting out of line? You know, I'm a little bit dominant. I'm trying to learn how to be a little more graceful. But what I love about Jesus, when, he finally, when God finally comes onto the scene to rectify the biggest problem in humanity, which is sin, you know what he does? He doesn't condemn the world. He saves the world. John 3, it's all in there. How did he do it? He ushered in this kingdom. You see, the kingdom isn't a place or something that happens later. The kingdom is a time of God's sovereign rule, and it started once Jesus showed up. The kingdom, it was inaugurated with Jesus' birth, life, death, and resurrection. It's going to be consummated at a second coming. But let me tell you, don't misunderstand. It is already here. God's rule has already begun. It's begun even in this crazy world. God is still in charge and his kingdom has come. The spirit is available to all of God's people. The future has made its way to the presence. I mean, that's why, that's why when Jesus' paradigm, his way of thinking, his actions, his ministry, his whole life was on another level. Why? Because he was operating under this brand new kingdom while being stuck on this, uh, on the, on this broken earth. He'd defy laws of gravity. He'd walk on water. He'd cast out demons. He would do crazy. He's at a party. He's like, give me some water. Bam, wine. You know what I'm saying? Why was he able to do that? Because he was operating in this kingdom that is now present. But in this kingdom, there's also a higher level of living and thinking. And that's how we approach the Sermon on the Mount. It's not just some sermon of niceties. Hey, do this and do this and don't. I mean, I, we can't even get past two or three things before we're paralyzed. And like, I, I, no, he's saying two things. This is the culture of this kingdom. And secondly, it's impossible for you to do it on your own. That's why I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. So my encouragement for us today was that when all these preachers come through this summer and they're preaching, do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this. It should all draw us to the point where we look heavenward and we begin to worship Jesus and the Spirit of God will then be able to enable us to be who God created us to be. Now, so today's topic is vows. Matthew chapter 5. Do you know what the midpoint of the calendar year is? <laughs> today. Let me ask you a question. 
how's your New Year's resolution doing? <laughs> uh, with each new year, right, comes a fresh wave of people making commitments. They throw out the old, hey, I'm going to start fresh. You know, New Year's resolutions are made. New vows are taken, which inevitably leads to another year of broken promises. Now, I'm not trying to be pessimistic here. I, I, I truly want to believe, like, uh, you know, the best, just like we all do, but I'm also a bit realistic. But here's the thing. Broken vows and promises they're actually very significant, and they affect us. They're a big deal. I remember when I was a teenager in the Tenderloin, and my dad hired this youth pastor. We had a youth pastor for about a year. And uh, this youth pastor, it was the first time I ever had a youth pastor. He was the only one I've ever had. And one day he goes, Christian, I want to take you fishing. I was like, man, that would be incredible. I've never had time to, like, spend with a youth pastor. Like, I, I had other friends. I went to other churches. They had great youth pastors. I was like, man, this guy's going to take me fishing. He goes, I want you to just meet me in Daly City near that McDonald's, you know, the McDonald's and, uh, and Boston Market. He's like, just wait there, man. I'll be, about, I'll be about an hour. I'll be right there. I was like, man, went to Big Five. I bought a fishing pole, and I was waiting. You know, we didn't have text back then. You know what I'm saying? Waiting, waiting, never showed up. Thank you. I, there's no point to the story. I just wanted to, <laughs> just kind of wanted to get that off my chest. <laughs> I have a thing about people abandoning me now. You know, it's like, it's like a broken promise. Oh, how about this? One time I took, so, so I, <laughs> my dad fired the youth pastor, by the way. Um, and then my dad turned to me. He's like, we need to reach youth. You be the youth pastor. I was like, great. You know, I was 17. I started reaching young people. And, uh, man, I took 30 young people to a youth convention in Sacramento. Now, at the time, I had bought my first car, $800 Jeep. I put a $400 stereo on it. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> and so I left the Jeep. I took the church van, took 30 kids to this youth convention. I came back. I'm, like, looking for my Jeep. I said, Dad, where, where's my car? Someone stole it. He goes, oh, oh, son, son I forgot to tell you. While you were at youth convention, I sold your car to one of our teachers for a dollar. You know, my dad's name's Roger Hong. My legal name's Roger, so he just did all the paperwork. I was like, how did you sell that for? He goes, don't worry, son. I'm going to buy you a brand new Mitsubishi Sport. And I was like, okay, that's A, illegal. B, you should have told me. But okay, like brand new car, I'm in. Three months later, dad, can I get that car? I'm tired of driving the church van. I look creepy. Yes, son, let's go. We hop in the car. My dad, me, my sister's there. I'm like, oh, Michelle, thank you. You're going to support me. Thank you so much. We go to the lot. They're wheeling and dealing, signing paperwork. Who's driving out of the lot with a new car? My sister, of course. <laughs> to this day, my dad never bought me my car. <laughs> thank you. Just got to get off of my chest as well. <laughs> I have a thing about people abandoning me. I have a thing about where I park my car now because I'm always suspicious that it's going to get sold illegally. <laughs> broken, <va> bro <laughs> broken vows and broken promises affect us. And that's why I have three main points for you as a church today. Number one, vows are costly. Number two, don't make vows. <laughs> but the last and most important one is I want to encourage us as a church to focus on the greater vow. What is the greater vow? We'll get to that in a second. But first, let me prove that vows are costly. And I want to read you this story. Man, I love Old Testament stories. I get more out of Old Testament stories than even New Testament stories. Judges, chapter 11. Could you just, I know it's a lot of scripture here, but listen, my words always fall to the ground. They produce nothing. God's word, when spoken, even in a public sense, it will produce fruit. Can we follow this story? This is one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament about a guy named Jephthah. Judges 11. Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty warrior. 
His father was Gilead. His mother was a prostitute. Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when they were grown, they drove Jephthah away. They say, hey, you're not going to get any of our inheritance as a family because you're the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled with his brothers and settled in the land of Tob, where a gang of scoundrels gathered around him and followed him. Sometime later, when the Ammonites were fighting against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to Jephthah from the land of Tob. Come, they said, be our commander so we can fight the Ammonites. Jephthah said to them, hey, didn't you hate me and drive me away from my father's house, and now you're coming to me because you're in trouble? The elders of Gilead said, well, you know, nonetheless, we're here. We are turning to you now. Come, help us fight these guys. And then, hey, you could be the head over all of us. And Jephthah answered, suppose you take me back to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gives them to me. Will I really be your head? And the elders said, the Lord is our witness. We will do as certainly as you say. Now jump down to verse 30. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. So he got in his prayer closet. He said, God, okay, if you give me these Ammonites, like here's my chance to become ruler and redeem my name. If you give me these Ammonite guys into my hands, whatever comes out of my door of the house, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's. And I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. Then Jephthah went over to fight the Ammonites. And guess what? The Lord gave them into his hands. He devastated 20 towns. Thus Israel subdued Amnon. When Jephthah returned home in Mizpah, who should come out to meet him but his daughter? Dancing to the sound of timbrel. She was an only child. Except for her, he had neither son nor daughter. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and cried, Oh no, my daughter, you've brought me down and I am devastated. I made a vow to the Lord that I can't break. My father, she said, you have given your word to God. Do unto me as you have promised, now that the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the Ammonites. Verse 39, after the two months, she returned to her father, and he did to her as he vowed. What do we learn from Jephthah's story? Number one, making a vow to God is a serious thing. It's costly. Vows are costly. Number two, it is not smart to make vows rashly. Do you know how many promises are made in the emergency room? But how many of them are actually delivered out in the recovery room? Come on, you know what I'm talking about. Like we're in the ER, it's like, God, if you could just get me out of this, I swear, I promise, I'll never do this again. I'll never do this again to get me back in this situation. And next thing you know, he has delivered us. And we're towing the line one more time. We make these, va- these rash vows unto the Lord when we're in desperate need, when our backs are against the wall. We have no other place to go to except God. And we say, God, I promise if you will just do this. And we make those and then we don't carry them out. The reality is this. The wisest thing to do is actually not to make a vow. Because in the kingdom, and now we're on point two. If you want to know how fast the sermon's going, we're already on point two of three. That's why, that's why when Jesus comes onto the scene, remember, he doesn't just preach because he's bored and he just wants to throw out some ideological principles. No, no, he's ushering in this new way of living. I mean, he'd say things like, you've heard it said in the law, don't commit adultery. He goes, but let me tell you something. Even if you look at a woman lustfully, you've committed, I mean, and all the guys are just like, His level of living and thinking was so much higher. This kingdom is ushered in. And then Jesus says this about vows. 
And this is our text for the day, Matthew 5, 33-37. He says, again, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. Here comes Jesus, but I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by earth, for it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you can't even make one hair white or black. If we could, we... All you need is to simply say yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from who? The evil one. What do we learn from Jesus? Do not vow at all. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Ever think about why people make a promise or a vow in the first place? I swear to God, which is naughty words in our home. You, you don't swear to God. I pinky promise. Or we throw out like the Kardashian, Bible. You know, we just throw out Bible. <laughs> on my mother, I swear. On my kid's grave. Why? The very act of making a promise or that type of vow proves, one, to not be trustworthy. You're basically saying, hey, I know you can't trust me, but let me call on someone more reliable. Father, God, uh, mom, you know, this Bible. When what Jesus wants is for us to simply say yes or no. You know, I joke around so much in life that actually when I try to be serious, I have to preface it with five, okay, listen, I'm serious. Like my kids never know when I'm serious and it's probably very bad parenting. But, but it just proves, it just proves that, 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 that vows and oaths, we shouldn't even do it. And what Jesus is saying is in the kingdom, our yes is a yes and our no is a no. And we don't need to swear to God. In fact, James 5.12, above all my brothers and sisters, do not swear. Not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to simply say is yes or no, otherwise you'll be condemned. Think about that. The thing about vows, it's they're costly and they're lose-lose. Why? Because if you keep it, it hurts. And then if you don't keep it, you're condemned. That's why many Christians, we walk around with our heads down. Because we have this condemnation on our shoulders and we're carrying this weight. Why? Because we vowed to God and we got baptized in public. And now all our friends, all of our coworkers know we're Christians. But yet we don't even have, the, the, we, we don't have enough willpower to carry out the very things we've committed. And so all of a sudden we are the downtrodden ones now. We are the condemned. And our non-Christian friends, guess what? They're living happily and free. Why? They never made a vow. So they could go out and sin and enjoy life. We can't even do that. We can't turn to sin. We can't, my favorite sin, gluttony. We can't even, just like, it's like, ah, I made this vow and ah, I don't have the willpower. There's a greater way. I'm not just coming to depress you, church. I'm coming to encourage you. (laughs) There is a better way. You want to know what that way is? Here it is. Today, I want to call us as a church to focus on the greater vow. God's vow to you. You ever get into a relationship where one person loves the other one a lot more? That's the worst, man. Do you know our relationship with God is actually like that? I don't know how God does it, man. He loves us even when we fail. And his commitment to us is unchanging. 
His vow to us can never be broken. You see, in the final moments before Jesus' death, there were displayed two types of disciples who resemble, there were two disciples who resemble the two types of Christian we have to this day. Now remember, this is the last supper, the last few hours before Jesus is going to the cross, and there's two disciples, right? Peter. Peter is doing what? He's boasting in his commitment to Jesus. You know what he said? I make a vow to you, God. I'm going to die with you, and I'll never deny you. Come hell or high water, I got you. And, and, and he almost proved it. I mean, like when they showed up, he pulled out a sword. He chopped off a guy's ear. So, like, it was in him. He, he, wanted, like, he made those vows before the Lord. Peter was the guy, by the way, who authored that, those song lyrics, I will follow you, follow you wherever you may go. There isn't an ocean too deep. A mountain, so that's, that's Peter. He's focusing on his commitment unto wherever go, I'll follow. That's what he said. I'm going to follow you, Jesus. Now, pan over. Okay, there's Peter singing to Jesus, I will follow you. You pan the camera over, and there's John. And what is John doing? He doesn't say a word. You know what John's doing? He's literally resting his head on Jesus' bosom. He's cuddling with Jesus. He is. He is. He is resting on Jesus, receiving his love. Jesus, uh, he's resting in Jesus' love for him. He's not boasting in his love for Jesus. He's resting in Jesus' love for him. He describes himself, by the way, as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And that description is only found in his own book of John. It's like if I went out with Dave and Tarek, right? We went out for sushi, right? And I go home. I write in my journal. Today was a good day. Three disciples went to eat. Pastor Dave, Reverend Tarek, and the one whom Jesus loved. <laughs> That's who John was. He, he just like, he was, Peter was outspoken. I'm going to follow you. I'll never deny you. And, Jesus, and John just like, this guy loves me more than anyone. What's the outcome? Fast forward a few hours later, Peter's vow was broken within hours in front of a teenage girl. <laughs> this teenage girl, oh, God is humorous. I, I, God is hilarious. Okay? He, he, he uses a teenage girl to confront this man who is a man of faith and vows to the Lord just a few hours later, I will never deny you. And God uses a teenage girl to say, are you with him? And he's like, no. And he runs off. What was the outcome of John? Everyone had scattered, yet John was there with his mom. And Jesus goes, I need you to take care of my mom. Who was the one that remained? You see, there are two types of Christians. Those who boast in their love and commitment and devotion to God. It's an admirable thing. It really is. When I was a lot younger, man, I used to walk around Candlestick Park and say, Father, you're going to fill this stadium. We're going to do this. We're gonna... Man, I'm so old now. I'm just like, I pray with my hands from a distance, you know. I used to pray crazy things. It's admirable, but it's not sustainable. Even the best of us fail. But those who boast in God's love for them, they focus on God's vow to them. They are able to abide in him, thus bearing the fruit of the Spirit. You know you can't make fruit? You have to bear fruit. And you know what? You can't microwave fruit. You plant fruit. All the millennials are like, I need, I need like, I need three days to develop gentleness. No. Are you kidding me? You can't microwave fruit. I got two days 
to be patient and prove it to my wife. No. I've been married 14 years. I just wanted to shout that out. (laughs) I just think that's a feat in and of itself. You see, like Jephthah, like Jephthah, God made a costly vow. You know what God's vow is to us? Everyone's like, so what's this vow? It's found in Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36. But I'll just read Jeremiah 31 for the sake of time. This is what God says. It's about this new covenant, the kingdom, the culture of this new kingdom. This old book, the Old Testament's gone. The New Testament's fulfilled. And, and, And this is God in Jeremiah alluding to this new covenant. And it says this in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. The days are coming, declares the Lord. Well, I will make a covenant with the people of Israel basically my people. It will not be like the old covenant that I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke that covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their heart. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they need to teach one another. Know the Lord because they all know me. From the least to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. The impetus now is on God. Not our commitment. Not our vows. Not our own personal willpower. God says, I'm going to make this vow to save my people. I'm going to forgive them. I'm going to put my spirit in them, and I'm not going to remember their sins anymore. And just like Jephthah, God said, whatever it costs to get this done, I'm committed to do it. And just as it costed Jephthah's only daughter to fulfill his vow, it costed God's only son to fulfill his vow, his pure, innocent son to die on that cross. You see, the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament and that's, that's what you're going through when you go through the Sermon on the Mount. Basically, Jesus is elevating everyone's level of thinking. He's like, hey, you've heard it said, you know, like, you know, like eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. He goes, no, 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 love your enemy. So what Jesus is saying is, you see, in the Old Testament, humans do all the work under the law. And the focus is on human effort, presuming upon their own strength. But in the New Testament, Jesus did all the work. And the focus is on the Holy Spirit's power, presuming upon God's strength. So what is our job? Our job now in the kingdom is to believe in him and to abide in him, to bear the fruit of the Spirit. And it starts by focusing on God's vow to us because God's vow is completely unchanging. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 16 through 19, look at what it says about God. People swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all arguments. On my mama, I swear. And everyone's like, oh, he swore on his mom. That's the end of the argument. But God, because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purposes clear to the heirs of what he was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of this hope of Jesus Christ, we could be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. Why? Because it's impossible for God to lie. God is not a man that he should lie. When he swears something, it gets done, period. Because he swears, there's no one greater than Who is God going to call on to swear on something? He has to call on himself, and he is unchanging. So when he says something to you, I will never leave you or forsake you. He swears to him, his unchanging self, and you could take it to the bank every time. 
even three seconds after your failure, you run back to the Lord and say, Lord, did you really mean you wouldn't leave me because I really need you? And he's in heaven saying, I'm, I'm serious. I have no one else to call upon. When I make a vow, I'm here. Today. Church, I, I, I'm sorry, I scream a lot. It's the way I keep our Tenderloin Church awake, but <laughs> focus on the greater vow. In a few moments, Kevin and the worship team, man, Kevin can sing. There's a difference between sing and sang. And this guy is one of the S-A-N-G. He's going to lead us. I, I said, Kevin, I don't know you, you don't know me, but we share the same dead. Father, could you lead us in this song? Because the lyrics of this song, I'm going to read in just a second. And I want us as a church, in this moment, this is not about sitting back. This is not about reality. This is not about anything. This is about calling this church on 4th of July weekend to focus on the greater vow. And when we stare at the, look, look, look my son, he's 11 years old, okay. When he, whatever he watches on TV, in two minutes when the TV's over, he's acting it. We're watching Animal Planet. Guess what's happening in our house five minutes later? Everyone's animals. We're watching Jackie Chan on TV. Guess what's happening? Kung Fu all night. You know, we're watching ESPN. What are we doing? We're playing basketball in the backyard. Because you become what you behold. Whatever you stare at is who you become. When I went deep sea fishing out right here out of the bay, we went under the Golden Gate Bridge and we went out for, to get salmon. Listen, by the way, I am not a nature guy. I love cities and concrete, okay? I have a patch of dirt in my backyard. I'm like, how can we get concrete here, you know? I'm, I'm like, I love cities. And so one time my friends said, we got to go deep sea fishing. I'm like, dude, there's easier ways. You go to the market and you buy the salmon, right? He's like, yeah, but it's the experience. All right, fine, let's do it immediately sick, okay, throwing up over the side. Like, and I'm just like, I hate you. You're not a friend, okay? You're not a friend. Friends take friends to sushi. And I'm sick. And there's really no way to fix seasickness once you're seasick. I mean, you could put Dramamine, you know, maybe. But there is a temporary, there is a temporary way. And the captain of the boat was like, dude, you're all right? I'm like, no, can we just go back? He's like, yeah, but other people pay to be here. You know, we got, I was like, okay. He goes, I, I tell you what, stare at the horizon. You see that mountain? Stare at it. Focus on what doesn't move. And you know what? That helped me till we landed the boat. And let me tell you something. Do you land a boat? Okay, anyways. <laughs> till we parked the boat. Till we docked the boat. Thank you. Thank you. I told you. I told you, man. Seriously. I'm not a nature guy. Or a transportation guy, I guess. I'm here to tell you this. This world is seasick. Volatile as it can be. And if you keep your eyes on the things of this world, you're going to be a, one of those sick Christians. I, and they'll look at you like, I thought you served this father that is completely reliable. And, you, and it's true, but you're looking at politics and you're looking at the, the, the circumstances. And you're looking at the, we need to, as a church, just six inches higher, look at the one who doesn't change. His name is Jesus. And when he, when he swears something, he swears by himself and he's immovable. And as you behold him, that's why worship is so important. It's not just some, man, if you sneak out during worship, you're missing the best part. You're missing the best because as you stare at whatever you look at is who you become. Worship lifts our eyes. Four, 
The Lord is the Spirit, 2 Corinthians 3. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is free. Dumb. Sorry. <laughs> Freedom. I hate when they hyphenate. So all of us. Okay. So all of us who have that veil now removed, we can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. And the Lord, who is the Spirit, makes us more like Him, and we are changed into His glorious image. How are you changed in the new covenant? It's not by willpower. It's not by do's and don'ts. It's through relationship. It's through worship. It's through sticking your eyes on Jesus. And as you behold him, you reflect him. And the spirit does this internal work. That's why we're changed now from the inside out. We don't try to modify people's behaviors. We try to connect people to Jesus, the person. Then the spirit does the rest of the work. <laughs> worship team, would you come forward? Listen to the words of this song before we worship. Your love is devoted like a ring of solid gold, like a vow that is tested, like a covenant of old. Your love is enduring through the winter rain and beyond the horizon with mercy for today. Faithful you have been. Faithful you will be. You've pledged yourself to me, and that's why I sing. I'll skip. I'll go to the second verse real quick. You father the orphan. Your kindness makes us whole. You shoulder our weakness, God. Your strength becomes our own. Old covenant, it's through osmosis. <laughs> Who he is becomes in us through the spirit. Now you're making me like, he, like you, clothing me in white, bringing beauty from ashes for you will have your bride, free from all her guilt, rid of all her shame and known by her true name. Father, I pray for Reality Church right now in Jesus' name. God, that we have committed some vows to you. Lord, and I just ask in Jesus' name that you'll release us from the condemnation of the vows that we've committed and couldn't execute. Lord, we're sorry. We're sorry that sometimes we're rash and we throw out big words and we boast in our own strength. But now we've heard the truth of the kingdom of God that we're not to make vows. Instead, we're supposed to fix our eyes on Jesus and focus on the greater vow that you have toward us. We look to you even now during worship.